0: Uh, It's it's so good to see so many people. Um, Cindy and I just fell in love with this congregation over the last year, and and, um, it's just so nice to be back. I wanna tell you a little bit about what's gone on in our lives since then. My last Sunday here was the last Sunday in June, and it was that Sunday that my wife Cindy's dad took ill. Took us about a month to figure out what was wrong with him, and then we found out at the end of July that he had stomach cancer, He was almost 91, and so he prayed after he had received the diagnosis and decided not to receive any treatment. He felt the Lord was calling him home, and so he passed into the presence of Jesus on uh, September 11th. We celebrated his funeral the day before his 91st birthday. Life well lived but it's just amazing how in the sovereignty and the plan and the goodness and the providence of God, I was able to sort of finish ministry here and then have, have time to really honor my father and, uh, and love him in the last days of his journey. But we're doing well. Our grandkids are doing well, and um, God has continued to use and bless us. In, um, in our time since being involved here. And it's just so exciting to see and to hear and stay in contact with some people to see what God is doing in, um, in Hope Mark. As Now you have the, the original Paul back. Paul <clears> 1.0. <throat> If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 and following. But before we actually turn our attention to the Word, I want to tell you a little bit about six-year-old me. I was born in Scotland, and uh, I grew up as a, as a uh, committed believer in Santa Claus. I uh, had a very well-developed theology of Santa I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that on Christmas Eve he would leave, having spent the previous 364 days making toys, putting them all in a sleigh, he would leave with eight very, very gifted reindeer, traverse the world, bring toys to children. And it all seemed so plausible to this six-year-old kid living just outside Glasgow in Scotland. And I remember the mystery and the wonder and the awe and the sense of just the amazing nature of what was going to happen. I would lie in bed just kind of tingling with excitement on Christmas Eve and then experience this unbelievable joy on Christmas morning when I would come downstairs and there would miraculously appear presents under the tree The milk and the cookies that we had left, or the biscuits, because we were in Scotland at the time, the biscuits that we had left for Santa Claus were, were gone. Like incontrovertible evidence of the existence of Santa. I was a believer. I was all in. But then when I realized that the mystery... That it produced so much joy in my life. That lie, counterfeited, that counterfeit perpetu- perpetuated by my parents, was, was a lie. When Santa died, so did my joy. When, when the mystery went away, so much of the joy went away. I still was okay with the presence, it was great. But there was no more of that sort of anticipation, no more of that mystery, no more of that wonder, no more lying in bed listening for Rudolph's hoof prints, or hoof sounds, before you fell asleep. And so as I've been for, preparing for this message and thinking about this message, I've been thinking about the correlation between mystery and joy, between the mystery of Christmas and the joy of Christmas. In 1 Peter 1, 8, Peter speaks to believers and he says this. Although you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, that was Peter's experience as a consequence of understanding, having, having experienced the mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rejoiced with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And I thought to myself, why is it, why is it that at Christmas I go to bed now and I don't have that same joy that I had as a kid? I don't have that same sense of wonder. I don't have that same sense of awe. Because I'm telling you, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christmas causes the story of Santa to pale into insignificance. Even if it were true, it doesn't hold a candle to the incarnation of the Son of God. And I realized, I realized that the joy, the, the, the wonder that six-year-old Paul had is something that 66-year-old Paul needs to have Today. This Christmas, as I thought about it, I thought about this passage of Scripture. This joy that Peter speaks about, inexpressible joy filled with glory, I think somehow approximates what I used to feel as a kid and what should be mine today, but not just in nostalgia, not just in the anticipation of family gathering, not just in anticipation of that you know, new Mercedes showing up in the driveway, like the commercial, which isn't gonna happen. <laughs> but in the truth of Christmas, the mystery of Christ. And it's so easier for us to forget the story of Christmas and the busyness and the hubbub, and the planning, and the shopping, and all the investments that we make to love our family, it's easy for us to forget the joy that we're missing. So Paul talks about this mystery and what probably was an, an early Christian creed that Paul is repeating here when he's writing to the Galatians. This is something that was probably extant and was being circulated orally before Paul wrote it down. But in Galatians chapter 4, he says this in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent a spirit into, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. At the perfect time, at the right time, God sent his son. The incarnation happened. He was born of a woman, born under obligation to keep the law in order that he might redeem those who similarly had that obligation to the law. So that, in order that, he might redeem those, make us children of God. And so, what I want to do this morning is try to unpack this mystery. Uh, you know, whole sermons have been preached on each of these little phrases, so I can't do any of them justice. But I want to walk through them to think about the mystery. And my prayer is that the mystery will sink down from our intellect, from our head from our cognition, deeply into our souls. And that it will not just be something that we understand theoretically and theologically, but it'll be something that grips us this Christmas and brings us profound joy, inexpressible joy filled with glory. So let me pray to that end. Father, I pray Lord that these words now will not just simply be truths that reflect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, although that is so critical and so important. But it would be more than that, Lord. It would be truths that grip us, that the old, old story would be fresh again in our souls, and that the consequence would be joy inexpressible and filled with glory this Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says, in the fullness of time. What he's saying there is that at the right time, or at the end of time, or completion of time, or at the appointed time. We can't know exactly what it is is in Paul's mind. So I'll give you a couple of ideas, and maybe all of these were in Paul's mind when he wrote those words. Perhaps he meant at the specific time specified by the prophets, We know, for example, that in Daniel chapter two, Daniel, because of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, was able to tell us that the kingdom of God would come during the fourth great world empire. He was able to explain how the Babylonian Empire would give way to the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire would give way to the, to the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire ultimately would give way to the Roman Empire. And during the time of the Roman Empire, he tells us in Daniel 2.44, God would establish an eternal kingdom that would never be destroyed. We're part of that kingdom. So we, so, so the prophets understood this. Daniel in chapter 9 tells us in somewhat cryptic language, but but it's very very clear. He tells us that 483 years after Artaxerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, made the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which happened in uh, five, 456 BC. So, 483 years after 456 BC, God's kingdom would come. That's 2627 AD. That that is specific indication about when the Messiah would begin his ministry. So the prophets had indicated that this was going to happen in the fullness of time, at the right time in history. But it may also have meant that, Paul may also have meant that at, at the most favorable time, the most propitious time for the spreading of the gospel, so the gospel was birthed in a time when there was a one world government. There was one language spoken. The Greek language was the, was the lingua franca of the day. Everyone spoke it. There was a network of roads. There was mail delivery system. Piracy had been obliterated on the Mediterranean Sea through the work of Pompeii about 100 years before this. There was a feverish messianic expectation in Israel. You see, when Jesus came, everything was ready. The table was set for a world-changing event. That may have been in Paul's mind. But I think personally that what he was saying when he says, in the fullness of time, he was saying, I think, that when humanity had demonstrated its carnality, its inability to save itself, When humanity had shown itself for what it was, God sent its son, his son. Both both Rome and Jerusalem were profoundly corrupt. Jerusalem called the, the leaders there, he called them a wicked generation, deserving the just punishment of God for their rebellion against him. Jesus came to his own. God incarnated himself in his people, and they didn't recognize him. And as a matter of fact, they killed him. That demonstrates how desperately depraved they were. You don't need to know much about history to know how desperately sick and how desperately depraved the Roman empire was. It was cruel, savage, and sexually debauched Human life was worthless, slaves, which in some instances made up the majority of large cities in the Roman Empire were chattel, they were treated terribly, they were exploited. Society, although technologically advanced, was debauched and depraved, both Gentile and Jewish. And at a time when the world had proven by its actions and behavior, that they were beyond redemption. God sent forth his son, the incarnation. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. There probably there are probably no more powerful, unbelievably amazing words than those. I am convinced that nothing in history past, nothing in history future will compare to what happened when God sent his son. The incarnation is absolutely breathtaking. There has been and will be nothing like it ever. God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God became like us, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity and became like us, not for 33 years, but for eternity, in order that we might become like him. Now, this is spoken about in the prophets. Again, let me just read to you quickly the passage that we're so familiar with. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 9, verse 6 says this. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The prophets had anticipated that something miraculous, something amazing was going to happen. And then an angel appeared, appeared to Mary and told Mary, how? Because she asked the question, how is this to be? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you, Mary. Mary. In your womb, the Creator God will be conceived. The one who spoke creation into existence will be conceived. It's it's hard to understand, it's hard to believe. But yet, there was a glimmer of that truth in the Old Testament. There was a Jewish scholar by the name of Alan Siegel, and he wrote a book called The Two Powers in Heaven in 1977, in which he argued that during Second Temple, uh, Second Temple Israel, Second Temple Jewish history, there was this idea that God was binatarian, that there were two gods. Michael Heiser, who was a theologian had just died this past year, he said this, for the Orthodox Israelite, this is Second Temple Jewish period, for the Orthodox Israelite, Yahweh was both sovereign and vice-regent, occupying both slots, as it were, at the head of the Divine Council. The binatarian portrayal of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible motivated this belief. The ancient Israelite knew two Yahwehs, one invisible, a spirit, the other visible, often in human form. The two Yahwehs at times appeared together in the text, at times being distinguished and at other times not. You see, there was this sense within Jewish culture that God was not just one. That God was one, but he was more than one. You know, you read this, some of the stories in the Old Testament, and you have Yahweh, the unseen God, and Yahweh physically present. And that was very prominent in the minds of first century Jews. So when the angel came to Mary and said, the Son of God will be conceived in your womb, and you will give birth to the one who will sit on the throne of David, Although it would have be been breathtaking and shocking and would have blown her away, it wasn't a new concept. It wasn't something that was completely out of left field. The visible Yahweh, who often appeared in human form, now left heaven. Not to meet Jacob or Abraham or Gideon or Joshua, but to be born of a woman, to be conceived in the womb of the teenage girl. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the essence of Christmas. This is the essence of the joy that we are intended to experience at Christmas, and I'll explain why in a second. Because it happened, it happened in time and space. God was conceived in the womb of a teenage girl and was born into the world. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of a woman. Now it's interesting in this passage of scripture that Paul doesn't say born of a virgin. He says born of a woman. And his point is not to demonstrate the divinity of the Messiah because he's already just done that by speaking about the fact that he is the son of God. His point is to demonstrate his humanity. His purpose is to highlight his human nature. His purpose was to highlight the fact that he was both God and man. God the Son, the second Yahweh, became like us. As I said, not just for 33 years, but became like us forever. Became human forever. So then, so we ask the question then, why was it necessary? Why was it so critical in order to save us that God had to become flesh? That the one who created everything, who spoke the universe into existence, had to become like us in every way. Why? Well, I think the answer is that humanity was profoundly broken because of sin. Our forefather Adam sinned in the garden, and as a result, all of his progeny, every single one of his children, and his children's children, and their children, and their children children, were broken when they were born. They were corrupted versions of humanity, born into sin. And so what God did, this is the magnificence of the plan of salvation, what God did is he sent his son born of a woman to be the perfect man, the ultimate man, the second Adam, the firstborn of a new creation, the firstborn from the grave. You see, the first Adam had represented us in the garden. Somehow in the economy of God, we were in Adam. Each of us was in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we fell. And sin began to permeate creation. And Adam's sin condemned humanity. But Jesus, the second Adam, also representative, represents us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians 15 and other places. He represented us. And somehow in the economy of God, we were in the second Adam. As we were in the first, we were in the second. And as the sin and the condemnation of the first Adam fell upon us, so the righteousness and the perfection of the second Adam is attributed to our account because of what? He did. He represented us and by his obedience rescued us that we might become all that God had originally created us to be. Think about it. The first Adam sinned in the garden, and because of his sin, he was banished to the wilderness. The second Adam, the Son of God, born of a woman, fully God, fully man, began his ministry in the wilderness, confronting Satan and sin and temptation. And for three years, he brought heaven to earth. He brought the kingdom of God to earth. He lived as God intended man to live. And just before he went to the cross to satisfy God's wrath for our sins, he faced the decision again in a garden. See the reversal? Garden, wilderness, wilderness, garden. And in the garden, he was tempted And with great drops of blood, he anguished. But he made a decision, a decision contrary to the first Adam, and he went to the cross, and he redeemed us on the cross. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, but born under the law. Born under the law, born under the law, born in subjugation, subjection, obligation to God's law. It's fascinating how in Luke 2, it tells us, very intentionally, Luke, the historian tells us, that after the birth of Jesus, his mom and dad went up to the temple according to the law, to do what the law said needed to be done, to offer sacrifices according to the law. It's repeated over and over and over again. And then toward the end of that chapter, in verse 39, we read, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. You see, from the time that Jesus was born, by the ministry of his parents, and then ultimately by his own choice, he lived under the law perfectly. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He didn't sin. He was God, man. He was the perfect man. He was sinless. For 33 years, he lived amongst us, the only man ever to fulfill the righteous, holy, perfect, good law of God. And he did it in order to qualify to redeem those under the law, to redeem all of us who similarly had that obligation to a holy God, to follow his holy law. And from the moment that we were born, we're rendered because of sin, incapable of doing that. He came to redeem us, to buy us back, to purchase us for God. to lay his life down for those who were guilty and under the condemnation of the law who unlike him were cursed by the law you see the perfect God man willingly sacrificed his life he willingly allowed a holy God to condemn and curse and punish him in our place he's he's Was and is our substitute. And by his suffering. By his shed blood. He has purchased us for God. He satisfied the wrath of God. That we might be forgiven. He became sin. In order that we might become as righteous. As God is through him. And it's not just that God punished Jesus. So that. He vented his anger and his just wrath for our sin so that now we are just simply forgiven. The slate is clean. It's not just that. But we are given the perfect law-keeping righteousness of Christ and it is attributed to our account. It is credited to our account. And God sees us today not just as forgiven and sinless and no longer under the punishment of the law and the condemnation of the law, but he sees us as perfect because our big brother, Jesus Christ, kept the law on our behalf and his righteousness is attributed to our account. That's why Paul talks about being covered over in the righteousness of Christ. When God sees you, that's how he sees you. He sees you in his son. So there's the mystery of Christ. As Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? One of the things that I miss, I'm too old now, but if you ever got to be a pastor again, I'd sing this hymn in our church. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? One of the verses, two of the verses say this, "'Tis mystery all. "'Tis mystery all the immortal dies." who can't explore this strange design, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire, no more. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? What I have just recounted for you is the greatest story ever told. This mystery of Christ, the story of Christmas, The story of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most wonderful, the most most breathtaking, the most beautiful, the most engaging story that the world has ever heard. And we'll never plumb the depths of it. We'll never figure it out. We'll never answer all the questions. We'll never get to the bottom of it. after a billion years in eternity, not that there can be years in eternity, but you know what I mean. But God has shared it with us the way he did that one of the results would be joy. That we would have that joy that that six-year-old little guy back in Scotland had on Christmas Eve, when his heart was set on a fabricated mystery. That same joy that same excitement should grip us. And I think what Paul does in the next, little part, the next little bit here is explains how. And in the time I have left, I want to take a few minutes and just explain how the mystery produces the joy. Paul says that God did all of this. That God revealed this mystery in history, in time and space, in order that so that we might experience two joyful gifts, two amazing gifts that should bring us joy, that should take our breath away, that should cause us this Christmas Eve to lie in bed like you were a kid again and just be filled with joy because of what the Lord Jesus has done. And the first one is this, adoption. Look at what he says. And because, I'm sorry, Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, that we might become children of God. The first gift is adoption. Now I want to read for you the first section of this passage and the last section of this passage to help us understand what adoption was. So if you go to take your Bibles again and go to chapter 4, verses 1 and following, and then we'll read 8 and following. Paul says this in verse 1 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Go over to verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. To those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? You see, it's the same word, same phrase. Those elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more, you observe days and seasons and years and months. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain, Paul says. Now, to understand this, we need to understand very briefly something about the Roman family. If you were born as a son in a Roman family, that didn't guarantee that you would be received or adopted into that family. Every child born into a Roman family, every son born into a Roman family had to be adopted by his father. It was a legal document that the father would sign recognizing this child as his son. There was this thing in Rome called the... Patria potestus, the power of the father. And often, usually when a baby was born, the mother, whoever she might have been, would bring the baby and place the child at the father's feet. If the child picked it up, the child could stay in the home. If the father refused to pick it up, the child would be discarded. But being picked up and allowed to live in the house as a biological child of the father did not guarantee that that son would grow up to be adopted by the father or recognized as a son by the father. He had to be officially adopted. Sometimes if the father didn't like a particular son or wasn't proud enough of him or felt that he was a useless son or didn't live up to his expectations, he could make a nephew his son. Sometimes a father would make a complete stranger his son and adopt him and have this stranger supplant his biological child. And so behind this analogy that Paul is talking about, and it's a very detailed analogy, but behind this is this idea that there was this, in the heart of these kids growing up, there was this sense that I got to measure up. I got to meet the standard. I got to live in such a way so that my Father will accept me. And Paul calls this the elementary principles of the world as it relates to our understanding of God. He said that human beings function that way in relationship to God, there is an elemental principle. A natural, instinctive, innate way that all human beings think. We are wired to believe. It's it's part of how we function as human beings. We have this sense that if we want to be accepted by God, the way that that young man desiring to be accepted by his father, if we want to be accepted by God, I got to meet the standard. I got to measure up. I have to work hard. I got to be the best version of me. Because if I'm not, my Father and my Father in heaven will not accept me. Paul calls this elementary, immature, basic principle of human nature. Colossians, he talks about the same things. He he talks about it there as, you you know, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. It's religion. Here it's observing days and months and years and seasons. It's all about religion. And what Paul is talking about here is something that is fundamentally different. What God does for us is he adopts us into his family. He makes us his children. Not because we have met the great, not because we have worked harder, not because we have presented him the best version of ourselves, not because we have striven with all our efforts to keep the law, not because we have been good, but because of what his son did on the cross. You see, all of us are born because of sin, trapped in this box, trapped in this mindset, this elementary principle, this elementary fundamental way of human thinking that we cannot break free from. That thinking, that, that those elementary principles about our relationship with God is the foundation of every single world religion. Think about it. every single world religion is based on this idea that, that God's up here and I've got to follow I gotta follow my religion, I gotta climb the ladder, I gotta do everything I can in order to satisfy God, in order to make myself presentable to him. Every religion is founded on that principle except one. And that is the gospel of grace. And what the gospel of grace teaches us is that we are saved by grace. My roommate at the, uh, at Sholdyce last week was a wonderful man. And we were lying there talking And at one point in time, I said to him, I said, all of us are going to stand before Jesus one day. And he goes, I believe that. He's a fine man, Catholic man. He says, I believe that. And there was a moment of silence. And he says, that's why I always try to give back. I always want to give back. You see, in his mind, the elementary principles of the world had had convinced him. It's innate. It's part of who we are that i got to somehow satisfy my dad in heaven so that he will adopt me. And so I explained the gospel of grace to him. I don't think he heard it. He heard it, didn't understand it. You see, the gospel is counterintuitive. It's completely upside down to the way that we think. And here's the point, and this is what should bring you Joy. If you understand the gospel, as I've just explained it, if you understand that you are saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, God has adopted you because no one but a child of God understands that. No one but someone who has been quickened by the Spirit of God can comprehend that. Had it not been for God's grace, you would never have seen this truth. Had it not been for God's mercy, you would still be striving to please your Father in heaven, climbing the ladder. You see, we were blind to the fact of our own impotence until God adopted us by grace. Going back to that great Charles Wesley hymn, he talks about how that happens in the life of a Christian. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's the elementary principles of the world. Don't do this, don't do that. Celebrate this day, go to church then, give that, be this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay in sin and nature's night. Then suddenly thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Light came. Light came. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth and I followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You see, if you see it, if you really see it, if grace has gripped you and you understand that despite your sin, despite your rebellion against God, despite all of those things that you have done that should have sent you to hell, that you are a child of God simply because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you see it, you're a child of God. God is your father. God has adopted you because people who can't see that are not children of God. A child of God is someone who knows their sin, who knows their spiritual impotence and their brokenness, and who just relies completely on the finished work of Christ. And they're able to say, Abba, Father. Father. And that's the last gift. The second thing that brings us inexpressible joy is not so much an, ex- an objective reality as it is a subjective experience. Look at what he says in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sends the spirit of Jesus into our hearts. And there is this cry that comes from deep within that says, Daddy God. If adoption is a legal experience where the document is signed, a forensic moment when that legal statement is signed in the blood of Jesus, this is what happens afterwards when the adopted child runs into the arms of that parent and is embraced and hugged. I want, you to, uh, I, want you to, I want to read for you what Paul says in Romans 8. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Have you ever experienced that? The Spirit of God testifying down deep in your soul that you are a blood-bought, precious child of God. There is incredible, infinite joy in that experience. And for so many years of my life, I was so kind of like anti-charismatic that I used to think that anything emotional was, was, was inappropriate. And I learned many years ago that's foolish thinking. That God created me to experience him emotionally. And I'm convinced there should be moments in our Christian experience when the Spirit of God reminds us in intimate moments of worship and prayer and Bible reading and preaching, meditation, that we are children of God. And it's not just here, it's here. And when that happens, tears flow. And peace spreads to the deepest recesses of our hearts. Love for Jesus explodes in our soul and we rest in his love. And it is a powerful, genuine experience that I believe God wants all of his children to have. In Romans chapter 8, his sermon series on Romans, Lloyd-Jones said that if that is not sometimes our experience as Christians, as children of God, we should sue God for it. It's our right. It's our right to know that you're a child of God. Because God has done something in your soul. He has saved you. He has redeemed you through the mystery of Christ. To understand that is wonderful. But then to have those moments when the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit, when God says to you personally, I love you. I'm for you. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will guide you with my right hand. I'll bring you into my presence, faultless. Times will be tough. Life's hard. But I, the living God, love you. And I want you to experience that this Christmas. I want you to know that joy. Joy of adoption. Enjoy the witness of the spirit of Jesus in your soul. Because I'll tell you, the excitement, the joy that I had as a six-year-old kid pales in comparison to knowing that I'm a child of God and having God in those special moments hug me and just say, Son, I love you joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this Christmas we will experience that kind of joy. Not based on the fact that family's coming, not based on the fact that we're getting gifts, not based on the fact that this is a very nostalgic, warm, reflective time of year where we gather together, go to church, experience tradition. But Lord, I pray that this Christmas that we would just take some moments along with you. We would think about the mystery of the gospel and realize that because we believe it, we are adopted children of God. And then Lord, at some point, maybe when we least expect it, you would overwhelm us, that we would rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. I thank you, Lord, for Christmas, that you love us. Let us celebrate well this Christmas, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.